Sippers, welcome to the Tea With Me podcast with me, your little friend Shane Todd. It's a guest episode this week. My guest is none other than Gordon Smart. Gordon was the showbiz editor of The Sun for many, many years, despite just being like a young guy. He's also been the deputy editor of The Actual Sun, the editor of The Scottish Sun, and more recently he's been doing a show on Radio X. We talked about a load of different things about when he was showbiz editor, the people he met, the interactions he had, Amy Winehouse, Noel Gallagher, he rubbed shoulders with them all. And more importantly, I got to ask him about my friend Harry Styles, who I would like to be a lot more than my friend. And Gordon proceeds to tell me a story about Harry Styles that, by the way, I didn't ask anything about Harry Styles' penis, but he told me a story about it nonetheless. And it's the best and only Harry Styles' penis story I've ever heard. And if anything, it's made me like Harry Styles a lot more. So tune in for that. Before we get into it, let me plug two things. Number one is Patreon. Patreon.com slash Tea With Me Podcast where you can get the bonus episode of the podcast every Monday, merch giveaways, the live episode, all that kind of thing. And also Manscaped, manscaped.com. Our promo code is Tea With Me. And if you use that, you get 20% off and free shipping. Manscaped is essentially a tool that allows you to make your tool look better. You know, we surveyed 100 guys and we got 100 guys in Northern Ireland to pull down their trousers and pants. And then we conducted a survey and we said, let me see your pubic hair. And we looked and we were horrified. We were absolutely horrified, apart from one guy who uses the Manscaped Lawnmower 3.0. So that's what we need to do. We need to go to Manscaped, check out what they do. Producer Dan and I have got the travel kit. So we've got the Manscaped Lawnmower 3.0. We've got the ball cleanser, the toner, the moisturizer, all of it. Big Mike back in the studio today, not yet a Manscaped user. And he is excited about how his life is going to change and his friends and family's life are going to change when he starts trimming it up. So check out manscaped.com. The promo code is Tea With Me. You get 20% off and free shipping. On with the Tea With Me episode with the lovely Gordon Smart. Gordon, I ask the hard-hitting questions. I ask the big questions. Let me ask you this. Do you drink tea? If so, what is the level of your tea drinking? When did you get into the game, et cetera, et cetera? This is going to be such a sad story to start with, Shane, but my, my tea <laughs> drinking, I think this will be the first story you've heard about injury stopping a man drinking tea. Um, yeah, yeah. I've had a terrible... Do you appreciate drinking tea? <laughs> <laughs> Do you know anybody who's ever played sport with me will think, for fuck's sake, once again, he's injured. <laughs> it's, it's ridiculous. I... Uh, I've been. I've had six months this year, Shane, without being able to speak. I got a hemorrhaged polyp on my vocal cord, which was a horrible thing. And the worst things for it are alcohol, coffee, and tea. So I've I've been through lockdown without the support network of tea. I mean, I'm that, that, that's what Shane. everybody needs. That's the one thing everybody needs. I mean, even more so than your voice. You need you need to be able to drink a cup of tea. Uh, alcohol, tea. Oh man, it's been it's been a, a rough ride this year. Were you just not able to speak for six months? Pretty much. I mean, I had a bit of a voice, but I just sounded like I was on about forty regal king size a day. You know, it was, and it would just disappear after half an hour, and I just ended up making a noise like that. But sometimes I think that's sexy. Like sometimes the first couple of days of a throat infection. I mean, what you had was way more severe, and it shouldn't underplayed. But the first couple of days of a throat infection, like you, it sounds good. Thanks for that. Well, 
it's totally redundant though having been married for 17 years there's no point in having a sexy anything when you have and listen you are steaming into this world now right as a yep. man with a child uh, and you're recently married as well aren't you you were gordon good question how long ago would it have been <laughs> i mean listen if off the top of my head yeah it's somewhere between one and four years ago i got married <laughs> I can't remember the exact time, but I'm going well, to... Listen to me, I, I turned... Like two and a half years ago. Good man. I, t- I turned 40 in lockdown, right? Been married for 17 years, uh, two children. There's no point in me having a lovely voice. There's no point in me giving a shit about my body. It's just, it's all over, mate. Done. Well, I'm 32, are you saying? Like, is 40 the age? Are you saying I've got eight years left to kind of sculpt? And then after that, it's just, it's just done? Well, I, I got the snip about 18 months ago. That was kind of a a sign that things were heading in the wrong direction. And um, it's just got worse from there, really. So I'd say you've got seven or eight years before it's just, just retire and just give up, leave. I'm going to make the most of that. Then. But I, I want to chat. There's loads of things I want to chat to you about, one of which is this. I know from your social media, you're a big football fan, big Hibs fan. I've been to one SPL game, one Scottish Premier League game, which was... Hearts, whenever I was doing the Edinburgh Fringe Festival, which I'll, I'll want to chat to you a bit about as well, um, I went to see Hearts play Partick Thistle because uh, I just I had a real appetite for some football and then I went to see Hearts v Partick Thistle and I still had an appetite for some football. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how you ended up at Tynecastle because all the great comedians, I might say, who visit Edinburgh for the festival come and visit Hibs. Well, that's so why. <laughs> <laughs> I Sean Hughes, the, the late, great Sean Hughes, for instance, a uh, massive Hibs fan, used to see him at Easter Road. And Andrew Maxwell as well. Yeah. Big, yep. big Hibs fan. So I, it was a friend of a friend, had, had tickets at Hearts. He's like, come down, watch the game. And uh, the, the probably the most uncomfortable I've ever been in my life, the w- worst moment of my life was I went up to the, the tea van at Tynecastle and uh, I asked if they did green tea. And the woman, the, the sort of 55-year-old woman that was working there, uh, very nearly phoned the police. You know, I was very, very nearly arrested for it. And I was it's just like very... Stuck the head on you, you know. You're lucky that you, <laughs> yeah. you just looked unimpressed. Good work. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I mean, it, it was very enjoyable. And I heard swearing at a Scottish football match that I've never heard before in, in such a creative way. Yes, yeah, so I love swearing. One of my favourite ever was um, Hibs played Rangers in about 19... 19- probably 1993, and Mark Haightley played up front with Ali McCoist. And I remember a Hibs fan whose his vocabulary let him down at the vital moment, and he just shouted from, from the East Stand, Mark Haightley, you're just a fucking fuck! <laughs> <laughs> and everyone was like, yeah, yeah good, good. We, we know what you mean. <laughs> he had to start saying that every week then to make it seem like, no, that's <laughs> that made sense then. So... Um, Let's go back to the fact that you lost your voice for six months. Being a radio broadcaster, I would say it's not ideal to, for half of a year, not be able to speak. Yeah, of, to have 99.5% of your body working pretty well and the other little bit preventing you from doing what pays the bills is horrendous. And it, Look, I, I'm very careful about complaining too much because there are people in more circumstances, but... It has been a bag of shite this year. Really, really miserable. Um, it's been lovely being at home. I actually realised I really like my wife and children, which was <laughs> one of the great outcomes of lockdown. But losing my voice, it was horrendous. Because, again, I did quite a lot of voiceover stuff, and that all stopped, obviously. 
and then I realised actually everything I do relies on me being able to speak and communicate effectively, and I couldn't do that. And I had some pretty dark times. And also, if, if you, you'll notice this yourself, if you're not pushing yourself and promoting yourself and like really forcing yourself on that industry that you work in, you're just forgotten about. And I just disappeared into the hills in Scotland like uh, Luke Skywalker on that island. <laughs> just disappeared. Yeah, I mean, there definitely is that thing. Even if I, if you don't put something out for even a couple of days, it's it's the idea of feeling not relevant or you know that the people who who like what you do will just move on very quickly which probably if they like you is not the case you know and and sometimes a a a break or taking a bit of time away is a good thing but you never think that at the time and uh god i just think well with lockdown that's the first time i've ever not been able to do stand-up for a load of months so a voice injury or damage in my throat is something i've never really thought about before but could so easily happen i mean if you're on stage for an hour a night doing a tour and you lose your voice. It's, uh, I imagine it's, uh, you know, with with the radio show and, and, you know, what you're doing, it's kind of a way to express yourself. It's a way to um, just, just it, it is who, who you are, you know, a broadcaster. So um, did you, when that happened at the time, did you know that it was like pretty serious or was it just like, oh, so we find a week or two? No, I'd had a problem with it for a while, probably about three years. And the surgeon eventually said to me, he said, is there a particular incident in your life, Gordon, where you've probably screamed or sung at the top of your voice or been on a rather loud night out? Or do you play sport where it involves you shouting quite a lot? And I thought, how did I tell this guy, right, that I've been swearing and shouting at the top of my voice for the best part of 20 years? Yeah. Really, you know, it's like in Harbour Bar and Port Rush at four o'clock in the morning in a lock-in when you're just screaming Sally McLennan or whatever it's called and ah, shouting at people <laughs> yeah I've not looked after myself properly and it's a serious one for you Shane right because I know a lot of comedians now who have started to take it quite seriously and like warn their voices up like John Robbins who used to work with me on Radio X he does vocal warm-up exercises because he's got quite a gravelly voice as well we I'm telling you man look after it because it's I mean it's your your industry it's your job it's your livelihood you, you know, if you were a professional footballer, you wouldn't just walk on the pitch without, maybe you would actually just walk on the pitch without warming up. But you, <laughs> smoking a fag, having a bacon roll. But you need to look after yourself, Shane, I'm telling you, said the wise old man. Speaking of the Harbour Bar in Port Rush, have you spent time in Northern Ireland before? Have you spent much time over here? Shane, this is, this is why I've come on this podcast, just to get very excited about how much I love Northern Ireland. So what's, uh, sorry, let's, let's go back a bit. Uh, to sort of set that up so um i have known your name for years and years because um of the i've got to admit you know genuine massive fan of the bizarre column in the sun back in the day you know i would have genuinely there's not a wind up i genuinely would always have was um what was the section in that where it was like i don't think it was called wicked whispers or maybe it was where it was like who are we talking about here I used, to, I used to do little things called Bizbits. It was uh, 3am who used to do Wicked Whispers. Um, it's so nice to hear somebody being kind about it because normally this is a conversation that's like the, the precursor to me having a fight in a pub. No, no, no. I'm a, I'm, <laughs> I'm a, I'm a gossip guy. Like, I'm big time. I'm the original uh, gossip guy. I love to read about celebrity gossip. And uh, whenever I used to go to college, I would, buy the, I would buy the sun in the morning, mainly for the football. The two things I would read were the football and the showbiz section. So... Um, Whenever I did the the episode with Jamie Dornan and and you and I sort of chatted a bit online, um, I was like, oh, that's uh, that's Gordon from the paper. 
So were you coming over to Northern Ireland back in the day through work or was it just like a, a social thing? I mean, it goes back beyond that. I've got a massive connection over there. Well, my brother went to university in Dundee and it seemed like everybody in Dundee between 1994 and, well, now is from Northern Ireland. Yeah, yeah. I don't know, <laughs> so why, we, I don't know why we go, I mean, nothing <laughs> against Dundee, but it's just, it's a strange place that everyone just seems to go to uni. It, Liverpool, uh, Liverpool, Dundee and Newcastle seem to be yeah. the three big places. And I just fell in love with all these mad characters from Northern Ireland. It was brilliant. And it just seemed to be that we all ended up playing football together. Like I ended up, um, the, the Snow Patrol boys, for instance, played football and around the same sort of time. And it just felt like everything led back to Belfast. And I ended up having this weird understanding of Belfast geography from meeting people in nights out. So it's like, Limavady, oh yeah, Bangor, uh-huh, Port Rush, yeah, Port Stewart, down Patrick, oh yeah, of course, the Garvahi Road, holy fuck. And then, um, like, I just became really pally with all these boys through my big brother. They were mental. I remember a guy called Brian, another fella, Henry, they were wild. And then I went to university at Napier. And just once again fell in company with some of the wildest men from Northern Ireland. And uh, that led to lots of bad behaviour and serious trouble. But then late, and when I moved to London in about 2003, I became really pally with a guy called Steve Martin, who I would love you to meet, actually. A great guy for you to know. And um, Steve Martin's dad was quite famous in Belfast, quite famous in Northern Ireland. His name was Tony Martin. He passed away uh, a couple of years ago, but he was a legend in Northern Ireland. He was a broadcaster. He was kind of like Terry Wogan or, um, you know, like a, an evening entertainment host on the radio. He was a drummer, a musician, quite famous and a real character. And I was lucky enough to meet him several times. Brilliant guy. And through Steve, who went to school in Belfast, but then had a real connection with Port Rush, I'd end up coming over all the time and became really matey with Jimmy, uh, with Jimmy Nesbitt. And Jimmy Nesbitt, as you know, is the king of Northern Ireland. Yeah, yeah. So when we came over, it just ended up becoming the second home. And I come over at least twice a year, play golf, Port Rush, go to the Harbour Bar, get leathered and in a world of trouble. And then my wee pa- I used to live with um, Martin Comston, the actor, and Comston films Line of Duty in Belfast. Of course, yeah. I come over and behave in Belfast. And he is, I mean, I- I'm amazed he's allowed back in after the <laughs> behaviour over the years. Um, yeah, he's, he's a fantastic lad. And I've got to know these characters. You, you might know them, actually. Jamie Dornan has got this driver um, called Dermy. And Dermy's like this big one. Yeah, oh, what a great man. And uh, there's old Nesbitt's mates, a guy called Big Mo, who just seems to be a mover and shaker in Northern Ireland. But I love it. I just love it. I, I'd quite happily move to Port Rush. I think I, I quite fancy it. One, um, so I, I know Jimmy Nesbitt like a little, like, like a little bit. I he was emceeing a charity a charity do for one of the Ireland rugby boys, and I was there to perform like a, a character a comedy character piece at it. And what was supposed to happen is Jimmy was hosting. I was supposed to come on. And are you familiar with these like undercover opera singers that are really big yeah. at like do? Yeah. Okay, so they had an undercover opera singer. He was posing as like the chef at the, uh, it was in Titanic Belfast. So I was supposed to go on stage, do my bit as this like snobby middle-class character. And then as I walked off the stage, I was supposed to leave my pint and then demand that the chef who was like just watching at the side, I was supposed to demand he went and lifted the pint and took it off stage for me. Like I wouldn't do it myself. Now, I presume that the people running this had told Jimmy Nesbitt, the event host about it. This is the first time I'd met him. So he brought me on. Now, I think it's fair to say Jimmy may have had pints, all right? And I'm just going to put that out there. There's a chance. He may have had a shandy. Now, 
I finished my set, which by the way, didn't go great because I thought everyone <laughs> everyone knew Jamie Dornan was there. I thought everybody knew this character. Uh, it turns yeah. out in a room of like 400 people, it was mainly just Jamie who did. And so I walked off having offended a load of people. And then I was supposed to do the thing with a pint. So I walk off, I see the chef. He's like a middle-aged guy. He start, looks very nice. And I was like, uh, on the microphone, I was like, chef, I was like, you take my pint there. I'm not taking it. Now, I thought he was just going to go, no, no, no. And then I'd ask him one more time and he'd go and take it, start singing Nessie and Dorma. What happened was I said to him, you take my pint. And he's like, no, no, no. We did a five-minute bit that he never told me we were going to do where I had to like basically humiliate him and be like, you are going to take it. Bear in mind, nobody knows my character, so they just think that I am this the most horrible guy. And I'm like, at some point, Jimmy and Esfit's going to help me out. Nobody had told Jimmy, so Jimmy ended up going to get the pint. This is in front of a silent room of 400 people. He walked on, get the pint, and as he walked past me, he said, I'll get your fucking pint. Then the guy walks on and goes, folks, uh, sorry about that. Then he gives a speech. Then he starts singing. But so much time had passed that nobody knew I was in on it. Everyone's like, oh, this chef's just a great singer. So I made sure that when he finished and he walked off, he, he, he killed it. Like, they loved it. And Jimmy Ness would just give me daggers. So I made sure that when the guy finished, I walked on stage and put my arm around him and was like, yeah, you know, we, what, what about us as a duo? But it was a horrendous moment. Uh, <laughs> And yeah, one of the worst moments in my life. I thought Jimmy Nesbitt was going to empty me on stage, but uh, it's horrible when that happens, isn't it? It's like a, a couple of things. Not not that's painful, but something like that happened to me. Right, one of my biggest heroes in life is uh, is Daley Thompson. Right, so when I was yeah. a little boy, I just I was obsessed with him. That what I couldn't understand why I, I wasn't brown like Daley Thompson. I remember saying that to my mum. I just idolized. Like one day when you get older, <laughs> yeah, I was like, he's amazing, and I was obsessed. Nineteen eighty-four Olympics in my back garden. And anyway, I eventually got to meet him at this dinner. It was at the Institute of Directors in London. There's about two and a half thousand people there. And they sit me next to Daley Thompson. And I, I, am, I am chewing his ear, like boring him to tears about computer games, about Carl Lewis, all that kind of stuff. And um, there were four speakers that night, Alex Stewart, Stuart Pierce, Howard Webb, the referee, and then Daley Thompson was last. Two and a half thousand people in the room. So Daley goes up to speak, big, huge round of applause. It's a black tie dinner. Now, Daly refuses to wear black tie, right? So he turns up in his tracksuit. So he walks up on stage. Everyone's applauding him, cheering him, the greatest Olympian Britain's ever produced or whatever. And he gets the microphone. He said, look, before we go any further and do anything, any questions are asked, who arranged the seating plan at this event? Oh. And this guy in a suit puts his hands up in the corner. And he's like, well, I'd just like to say you're a prick because you sat me next to the most boring man I have ever met in my life. <laughs> Gordon Smart from The Sun, can you please stand up? And I was like, two and a half thousand lives. He's like, that guy, avoid him. He's so boring. Honestly, I just, I almost went home because he's such a boring prick. Anyway, let's crack on. After he sits down, grabs me by the cheek and says, everyone knows your name now, son. Oh, got it. Just crushed. Let me ask you what, because uh, I mean, I guess for, for working for The Sun, for working in the showbiz industry for so many years, you must have gone to thousands of award ceremonies. What is the most, apart from your incident with Dilly Thompson, what is the most awkward incident you've ever seen on stage at an award ceremony? Oh, I could give you a top 10 of these. <laughs> it was quite a big staple in my job, but um, the two that spring to mind right now, 
Second, in second place, I would say the night Russell Brand hosted the NME Awards and um, Bob Geldof had a dig at him. And I think he'd been talking to Matt Morgan beforehand like about whether or not they should unleash the big joke. And because Geldof had a dig at him, he decided to retaliate. And he said, there's an irony, you know, a man who talks about famine but has been dining out on one song for the last 35 years. <laughs> I was like, oh. I that. I mean, that it was almost like you say, like he, he he must have written that beforehand because it was like it was too perfect, that too formed as a joke. But uh, but it was it, it was a great reply. Yeah. Was there like an awkward t- because Bob Geldof seems like one of those guys that you can't really slag him off because of all that he does for for charity and yeah. stuff. He's he's up on some sort of pedestal. Uh, but it yeah, got, I remember I think, that. that was yeah. a great it got the perfect Jim. What Jimmy Carr calls the perfect response: the the huge laugh and then the ooh afterwards. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but the, the, my favourite one, or say my favourite one, the most awkward one, was when James Corden hosted the Glamour Awards, the Glamour, Glamour Women of the Year Awards, and Patrick Stewart was there, the actor Sir Patrick Stewart, John Luke Picard, whatever he was called in Star Trek, huge Espian, massive name, and he was there with his new young girlfriend, and I think he had about too much wine, and he went, and he just, he tried to get a laugh and tried to be funny, but just basically said... James Corden's fat and not funny. And it was like, and James, like, he'd been doing really well, but it got to him, it really bothered him. And then it just turned into this sort of 20 minute argument. Oh, it was brutal. And fair play to James, like, you know, he, he came out with the upper hand, but it just, it, it was one of them I wanted to go home and cry. <laughs> Why, how did you become showbiz editor for the Sun? Because when I think of like a showbiz editor, I think of, you know, an older guy with a blazer. Like Ross King from Good Morning Britain seems like, I imagine how every showbiz editor looks, but you just seem like a guy I would play five aside with or just like a friend you would socialize with. So was that a natural, did you just like fall into that or was that very deliberate that that is what you did? It's a funny one. I've got this habit of being in the wrong place at the right time or the right place at the wrong time. I don't know, whichever way you want to look at it. But I never, ever thought that I would be the showbiz editor of The Sun, right? I was a journalist working in news. I worked for, a, I worked for DC Thompson in Dundee when I was 18. So I worked for The Courier and even The Telegraph. Went to university, did journalism, then couldn't get a job in newspapers for love nor money. Um, I ended up working for a press agency after being a football coach, a whiskey taster, I helped Edinburgh University uh, get men to deliver sperm samples for research. Obviously, Pardon? wasn't involved in the. I wasn't actually involved in the physical <laughs> side of that, <laughs> but I had all sorts of like weird jobs. And um, eventually, I, I ended up taking a job as a journalist for this agency in Edinburgh. So I worked for all the papers, you know, from the Daily Sunday Herald. It was mad. I worked for everybody. It was a great experience. And MTV Europe came to Edinburgh. And I happened to be working there as a reporter. Now, the lucky part for me was there was a guy I worked with in Dundee who, who was a brilliant character called Derek Brown. He was working on the Bizarre column for Dominic Mohan. So I managed to meet up with Derek. And it was mad because I think everybody was up that day, like Piers Morgan, Rav Singh, Andy Coulson, Victoria Newton, uh, Ross King. Everybody was in Edinburgh for this big event, and I managed to get them all in at different parties and stuff. And I think the front page story that came from it was about Justin Timberlake and Kylie Minogue getting it on. So they were like, what are you doing in Edinburgh? I come down to London, which was great, because my wife was um, singing and dancing in the West End. She was in the musical theatre, so I couldn't wait for my chance to run to London. That was it. 
And then I just worked harder than everybody else, tried to do every shift I could. Did three weeks on, on Bazaar working under Victoria Newton. Then I did three months at the News of the World, which people would probably be sick all over their, their earphones when they hear that. But, <laughs> you know, this, what people forget is the Sun and News of the World were better, better rivals. So the minute I got offered a job in the Bazaar column full time, I was 23. I mean, I never thought I was going to be a showbiz journalist. I loved music and I was really into sort of you know, celebrity culture, you know, in terms of film and music and all that kind of stuff. So grabbed the job. And then by the time I was 26, I was the editor of Bazaar. And uh, it was just the best laugh ever. I had 10 years traveling the world, meeting my heroes, causing mischief, interviewing people I idolized, falling out with people I didn't particularly like. Um, but, I, you know, I just, no Gallagher once said to me, ride it until the wheels come off. And I certainly fucking did that. Like, I had a right good go at it. I mean, I often felt like I didn't fit in. I was just waiting for a guy with a clipboard to come up and say, yeah, Gordon, you've had your fun now. Piss off home. And that's how I, that's how I treated it, you know? Do you think that's why you, you did it for so long and it worked so well for you was because you weren't like everyone else that worked in Chuba? You know, you're someone I, if, if I was being interviewed, I would be way more inclined to open, open, open up to you than somebody who you know, is, is more of a, like, lovey, you know, someone who's, like, a little bit more showbiz, you know, yeah. as, oppo- as opposed to just a, just a, a completely spot-on guy? Definitely. I mean, I think the way I tried to do it, right, when I started on Bizarre, I thought, there's another way to do this. You don't have to be, um, what's the word I'm looking for, adversarial all the time. You can get on with people. And it worked for me, right? Because, you know, obviously, at certain times, I'd have to sharpen my, my claws and be pretty brutal. But... A lot of the time, I had a good relationship with people, so they would tell you things. Obviously, they wouldn't tell you the horrific stuff that would sometimes land in your lap. But um, I think I had a really good relationship with people across the piece. I mean, obviously, there are folk who would disagree with that spectacularly. But yeah, being Scottish, and I think you'll find the same. I think Northern Irish people, as soon as I hear that accent, I just think, oh, brilliant, fun and games of mischief. And I think being Scottish really, really helped me as well. Was there ever a time where you sort of had to do a story you couldn't get out of it on like someone who had become a friend was that did that ever happen where like i don't know it's if you're uncomfortable giving a specific example that's totally understandable but did you ever have to do a story that absolutely killed you or you're like oh, fuck, oh i man. really wish all the time all the time i'm actually thinking about or hoping to make a documentary about that at some point where i can sort of go back and knock on a door and say look i'm now a father of two and a father and i'm really really sorry about that because you know, you got to forget, I was also growing up and maturing while I was doing that job and culture was very different. You know, if you still think about the lag, lads mag culture and yeah. the way people behave, it was so different. So when you look back on it now, sometimes I just think, oh God, what a dick. Um, and I'd love, there are people I'd love to apologize to, but in answer to your question, it got to the point where on a daily basis, I would find things out about people who I'd become friendly with that I wish I hadn't, I didn't know. And yeah. um, it was actually one of the reasons I had to leave in the end because I just couldn't, I couldn't sleep at night with things that were being written about people I actually really got on with. And that wasn't just in show business, it was in politics, business, every other walk of life. I just couldn't live with it. I mean, that, it, it feels like, like knowing too much might be a bad thing. Like we talk about award ceremonies, you're probably in a room with hundreds of celebrities and you know something terrible about every single one of them. Like your brain must be must be working overtime when you're chatting to someone in the back of your head, you're like, oh, I know this thing about you. And, and were you... Yeah, it's the way we work. It's the way we work. Sorry, go on, mate. Yeah, I was just going to say, like, you, do you, being someone who's like, who's a football fan, 
who's from Scotland, did you imagine living in London at the time and in that showbiz world? Like, was it very important to get a release of like, yeah, I guess coming over here, maybe to the likes of Port, Port Stewart, Port Rush, or like going, going back to Scotland? Did, did you feel like, did you ever get like too into it as a, as a, as a world? Oh, massively. Yeah. And it's, it's, I mean, listen, it's quite an upsetting thing because when you leave a job like that, it's a really good barometer who your proper friends are. And, you know, your fair weather friends evaporate the minute you're not helpful to write about a successful TV series or an amazing uh, career move, or if you get them out of trouble. So when you lose that currency, certain people in your life disappear. But it's also a wonderful leveler because you realize who the good guys are, right? And the, the good girls are. Um, but I definitely got wrapped up in it too much. But you'll be the same as me, right? You, you still turn up on a Tuesday night for a game of fives and your friends tell you you're a dick and uh, they don't really give a shit about your job. And like, I was very fortunate in all my time in London to have a brilliant set of friends. Like I played in this football team, uh, you know, chappers off match of the day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah so Chappers was in Mark Chapman, so Chappers was in the team and we had this I think there were three teams that played for this team called Ibis in the Southern Amateur League in London. And I you know, I by that point was uh, probably on borderline alcoholic, so I wasn't able to play at the level I was used to. So playing amateur football was probably the best thing for me with my other commitments. But I loved being with those lads and the team seemed to be made up mainly of people from Hull, which was quite funny. And those boys just, a lot of them were coppers as well. And they just didn't give a shit. We used to go along to gigs and all the rest of it. And, you know, I loved it because, you know, when, you, when you're hanging around with bands like Kasabian who are from Leicester or you're um, at events with loads of footballers and you're, you're surrounded by normal lads, it really, really helps. Because, you know, I hopefully wasn't starry or too big for my boots. And whenever I was too big for my boots, and it did happen, Mum, I'd go home with my missus from Dunfermline and she'd just say, you're being a total helmet. Get a grip of yourself. And that, that, that would sort you out, you know. Did, who's, who's one person you, you met that, uh, that like, you, you know, totally burst your bubble? Someone you were really excited to meet and then uh, the reality of it wasn't as, uh, as good as you thought it was going to be? It's funny, I get, asked, I get asked that quite a lot and I always think I need to spend more time thinking about a good answer for it because I, it's funny how your brain works. You tend to remember people who have actually exceeded your expectations and really made a mark on you and left a wonderful first impression. Well, oh, Gordon, don't get me wrong. No worries, no worries. Thanks, thanks. You're one of those fellas. Yes, actually, yes. Tell, you, tell you who is, Jamie Dornan is one of the greats. What a, yeah, what a yeah. brilliant human being. I just I think he's wonderful. I felt a bit embarrassed. I'd never seen The Fall and I've only watched it after knowing him. And now, when we have sex next time, it's going to be so weird. You and I always wondered why. Yeah, me and me and Jamie Dornan. You know, we, the next time we make love, I always wondered why he painted my nails. <laughs> but um, no, the people who have let me down or behaved appallingly towards me tend to be hip hop artists. Um, oh, okay. like, yeah, I, I really. I mean, I hope I can use this kind of violent language, but I was quite tempted to glass P Diddy one day. <laughs> Because <laughs> um, he, he got out of the car to do this interview and I shook his hand and he just said, before we do anything, I want to tell you I'm not in a fucking mood. And I, and Did I, he say it in that accent? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, you've got to remember, like, I'm trying to suppress all my Scottish instincts at this point to yeah. say, well, get back in the fucking car then and don't waste my time. <laughs> and it's like, the older I got, that like, I did do that on occasion, you know, yeah, when you're, yeah. you just tell people, you know, you're actually, you're being a total prick. Um, and that, that happened on a number of occasions. Like Robbie Williams and I have, uh, have exchanged 
quite a few punches, uh, terse words over over our time. But I actually quite like Robbie, and he won me over in the end. But that, I mean, some mad stories like um, who I mean, hip hop stars like you say, P Diddy was bad. Um, who else has been really? I mean, I, I, there's a lot of sad stories as well. Like I interviewed Whitney Houston, and she just. Uh, her nose was dripping on my notepad because she was so banjoed on narcotics, you know. And I just felt so upset that this idol of music was in such a bad way. And, like, I, I was quite close to Amy Winehouse as well, you know. I really, really liked, respected and loved Amy, but had to write all sorts of dreadful stuff about her, which I hated. And I remember sitting in, we have this thing called morning conference in newspapers where you explain your stories of the day to the editor. And I can think of at least 10 occasions where I said this is hard to tell everybody but I think Amy's going to die at some point because the life she's leading she doesn't have the frame to cope with it and it you know I still regret not being able to play more of a meaningful part in her her life because you know I can't imagine what was written about or helped her in any way and you know stuff like that that you know I'll live with me for a long long time but it used to hurt you know you're asking people who I remember Amy before she had a tattoo, right? And she was, you know, quite a big girl. She was a journalist at the time. And then to see, you know, what happened to her, I sat once and tried to interview her in a hotel in London and she couldn't speak. So that was quite upsetting in a different way. But like, to try and keep this more upbeat and happy and fun, Shane, um, generally speaking, hip hop stars were bellends. Uh, one of the only bad experiences I've ever had meeting a celebrity was I was doing warm-up for a BBC show and Spando Ballet were on as guests. And um, Tony Hadley, met Tony Hadley backstage. I'm not someone who, like, if there's, like, celebrity guests about the set, I'm not going to go up and bother them. I'm not going to, you know, even really introduce myself unless there is a natural time to do that. Um, But good chatting to Tony Hadley in the makeup room, the nicest guy of all time. Like, he... Is good friends with Tim Vine, so he's chatting to me about stand up and was like, seemed re- relatively interested in what I was doing. And then I walked past Martin Kemp in the corridor. And when I said that guy gave me the cold shoulder, now all I did was like a very probably Northern Irish thing, probably a very Scottish thing. If we pass each other in the corridor, there's no one around. I'm just going to say hello as we go past. I didn't want to shake his hand. I didn't want a conversation. I just was like, how are you? And he, like gave me like a bit of a like why are you talking to me look and just continued <laughs> to walk and since then i've been obsessed with bringing down martin kemp so if you know anything about martin kemp let's get it out there and let's cancel martin kemp <laughs> uh, he's, he's always been lovely to me i see but yeah it's just maybe it's because it sounded like sometimes the belfast accent it falls in one of two ways it's either like really terrifying or <laughs> yeah. wonderfully friendly and i think if you just walk past him and went bow gee yeah, he's probably, you know, yeah. who's that guy but um, you know I can't, I, it's a great thing I'm really interested in it like you know I, I've had a couple of horrible first encounters like I met for the first time I met Liam Gallagher it was at John Squire from the Stone Roses um, exhibition he had this art exhibition in London and he Liam sort of he, he doesn't walk right he, I, I wouldn't even call it a swagger it's like a, a kind of a, a weeble <laughs> he kind yeah, of, yeah 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 he sort of waddles <laughs> over and he's like ah, all right and I was like, hello. And he said, uh, your mates with Akira, aren't you? And I was like, uh-huh, aye. aye. And he went, as far as I'm concerned, you're a cunt in a nice cult. And I was like, I'm, I'm all right with that. Yeah, I'm, that. I mean, that would be my Twitter bio. 
if I read <laughs> I might change it, you're right. Uh, but, um, it evens itself out. I know, I used to get that quite a lot. It's like, you're the cunt from the sun. I mean, that, that was in Scotland, the cunt from the sun. And uh, in London, it was a prick from the sun. Northwest, you're like that fuckwit from the sun. Or the, <laughs> that. Yeah, anyway, you get the feeling, you get the picture. Did you ever get into like any personal hairy moments where somebody somebody would sort of take uh, take exception to who you work for? Like, obviously, you know, I'm sure you got stuff online or letters. But do you ever get into like a personal thing when you were out, like out for a beer one night or or any time you felt yeah. like? Yeah, it's a, good, a really good question, actually, Shane, because it used to happen a lot. And again, I think probably because where we come from and the way we were brought up, you know, I wouldn't just walk away or run away when somebody confronted me because I'd always like try and get to the bottom of it or try and disprove what they thought of you because I think generally speaking people expect me because I work for a tabloid newspaper to have horns uh, and be the devil and you know sometimes it's worth spending that time to go look I totally understand where you're coming from but you've got to understand why I work there and why I do this job and, and it used to quite often get me in real scrapes like I remember once in a pub in London there's a very loose connection to you in this story actually excellent did you know work with, did you not work with Stephen Nolan at one point that, so when, when I was talking about the, the TV show I did well for, it was Nolan's show, but I, again, forget that you know more about Northern Ireland than I do. So I was like, I'm not going to mention Nolan because you won't know who Nolan is. And it's mad <laughs> to me that you know Nolan. So yes, it was Nolan Live. Great broadcast. I think, I think he's a very talented man. And, uh, so, the, <laughs> so I walked into this pub in London, right? And uh, it was a leaving do for a mate of mine. And we're having a drink. And I go to the toilet and this skinhead fella like classic south london hard man millwall fan covered in tattoos grabs me by the the collar and he's like you're that fucking prick from the sun aren't you and i was like yeah anyway that's that jock prick from the sun and i'm like yeah that's me that's me and he said how do you sleep at night while all the people in this pub are paying for your junky family's prescriptions north of the border Scotland's being subsidised by the hard-working people of England. It's about time you lot fucked off. And I was like, like for five seconds, I'm like, wow. Like, is that really what you think? Yeah. And I, I don't know where it came from, but I immediately just fired, stood up tall and just said, well, you don't mind when we're spilling our blood for you in Afghanistan, do you, you prick? Now out of the way. And I just felt this wallop and they're like, he's chinned me, right? <laughs> I've gone into, like, I've got away from him, I've gone to the toilet. And I'm like, shit, like, I, I'm out of my depth here, right? I'm going to get hiding because, you know, he probably got the better of me. I'm younger than him. He's definitely harder. And I've gotten into the toilet, gone into the disabled toilet, locked the door. And I've texted another lad outside and, who is an ex-squaddy from Paisley. And I said, I might need a help. <laughs> I'm in the toilet. And then the next thing, I went outside. And um, anyway, my ex-squaddy, uh, Paisley Lunatic, managed to have a little word in his ear. But this Nolan connection is, I'd forgotten that I was doing an interview on Five Live um, about two minutes later. So I'm like bleeding from the ear and the nose. <laughs> and Nolan rings me, I'm massively out of breath. I'd love to hear the interview back because I'm shitting it. So I'm thinking I'm about to get lynched. There's gonna, <laughs> I'm on Live on Five Live having this blether with uh, Nolan. And I'm just thinking, I don't know what I said in that interview. But what I really want to say is I'm going to have to go because I'm about to be arrested. <laughs> so genuinely, I thought what you were about to say is, some like skinhead Millwall lunatic beat you up at a pub in London. You phoned Nolan and he came in and just cleaned house. And that is in my head what happened. And I'm gonna keep I'm gonna keep that. Uh, genuinely, I will try and get that uh, interview for you. I'll try and use my big BBC Radio Ulster connections, and we'll see if we'll see if we can get that. 
Tremendous. Uh, but yeah, I mean, that's it's the same kind of in a way. I'm not a violent thing like that, but with comedy where people think you're a certain way based on characters you play. And I guess you weren't, you weren't playing a character, obviously, but when you're a showbiz editor, you have to do things that aren't really in your nature, like, you know, uh, exposés on people, things that you, you, you know, you don't want to do. And with stand-up, yeah, I've never had anybody be violent towards me, but I definitely have had to, like, diffuse and walk away from things where people just have an upset. Like, you'd be amazed sometimes people can go from tell us a joke in a bar, you know, when you're just having a drink in a bar, to like being really threatening, you know, guys. Yeah, I get it. Yeah, I, I, I totally understand. And people also yeah. think they can say whatever ever they like to you without any kind of recourse. And it, yeah, it happens quite a lot in the world now, where people seem to have this get out clause of just finishing off by saying, "I'm just saying." Well, yeah, yeah. yeah. Actually, no, you're not just saying. You're you're being incredibly rude, and I, I hear it all the time in in company, and I'm really conscious and really aware of it now. It's like if, if ever you're in a room and somebody meets an accountant, they go, "Oh, you must be boring in a bean counter." Or my brother's a dentist, right? My brother's a dentist. You should hear what people say to him. You know, he's probably the most gentle, kind, generous, skint human being I know, and everyone just assumes he's a money grabbing, like evil man. And I, I can't stand like comedy's the same. You know, I got to know a lot of comedians over the years and the people behind the tears of the clown are very, very different, you know? Well, I think that's the thing of you'd be amazed at how many comedians aren't always on, you know, whenever you meet them in a bar or, you know, if you and I are having a chat, you know, I don't need to try and make you laugh every second, you know, because when you're on stage, that's what you do. But I think a lot of the time comedians and myself included we're always like in a way keen to like impress keen to be seen as the funniest people in the room but uh you just you can't keep that up and, th and that's what people when they sort of uh, tell us a joke and they get a little bit ag aggressive they think you're just always always on and obviously that's that's not the case when you're like just relaxing with friends um so w whenever you whenever you left the the song whenever you sort of got out of like um you stopped did you stop journalism at that point is that when you went straight into broadcasting yeah it was really tough actually because um i mean when i left the sun i was deputy editor in london right i did about a year back in london before that i was the editor of the scottish sun for about three years and um i'd been thinking for a long time that i wasn't coping very well with the job like I, I, all the fun ended when i left bazaar and pretty much overnight i went from having a carry on and being being out all the time doing a job I loved to being an editor of a paper during a referendum in Scotland and the mood just changed spectacularly. And there's this straight, this odd transition in journalism where you go from being a, a reporter or a writer to being a boss. And suddenly I had 150 staff or whatever it was in Glasgow and the fun just stopped. I didn't enjoy that as much. And I, you know, I, I kept being told by people further up the business, that it's time for you to put your suit on and grow up son. And, you know, one day you'll be the editor of the paper or you'll be this or that. And I didn't, I realised, it took me a bit of time, I didn't actually want to do that because you ultimately have to make people redundant. You are responsible for all those terrible mistakes. Even if you're not to blame, you are ultimately responsible. And I just found it really uncomfortable. And it, it was getting louder and louder in my head, the criticism of the, the journalism and the paper and, you know, allegations of racism and misogyny. And, but you've got to remember as well, I'd been through the Levison Inquiry three criminal inquiries and so it was you know a very fast growing up period and the fun that it just gradually ran out um but what I'd been doing since about 2011 was working on XFM so I had a show there for about two and a half years 
was doing a lot of telly as well. So I was on The Extra Factor. I did a series with Dave Berry. And I was really loving all of that stuff. But I had this constant like problem with people just assuming you were a tabloid monster. And everyone was just scared of you, which I find quite odd. It's like, why are people scared of me? You know? Yeah, yeah. So I'm not a person. So eventually, I call it take brave pill. I had to, and it took a lot of time for me to pluck up the courage. Because also financially, I don't think people really understand. You know, by the time you're the deputy editor, the biggest paper in the country, you've got certain perks. Like I had wonderful expenses, a great salary, long-term incentive bonuses, other bonuses built in. So it was like walking away from financial security. I had brilliant healthcare and all that. To suddenly pack that in to be the evening show host on an indie music station, it was a bit of a gamble, you know, but I just worked out the equation, like what price? And it's something a lot of people should think about. Is like, what price do you put on your happiness? And I could just see myself like dying at 50 as an alcoholic with a broken marriage and I weighed up the things that were important to me, like my mates, my wife, my kids. Like, you know, I hated walking into a pub and people I really liked just thinking, oh, you're that dick working for that evil rag. And I just couldn't handle it. I mean, I'm not embarrassed to admit it. I really, really struggled with that because as much as you like to say you've got the Piers Morgan rhino's arse skin and, you know, you can cope with criticism, I found it really hard. And especially when it's people you really respect and admire. I mean, I should think they're probably dicks for being so judgmental about me, but it, it still bothers me now. You know, I'm still four or five years on trying to, sort of tell people I'm not that guy from the sun and please don't judge you based on your profession. But then at the same time, I probably upset a lot of people in my time there. There is a certain part of me that has to serve my penance for those crimes. I'd say it was very, very like liberating to go to XFM, especially because XFM was such a cool station. Um, and I know it became Radio X, but it was a station I was very, very jealous that we didn't get here. You get it online, but you know, Ricky Gervais was on, was on, uh, was on Russell Brand. Um, it, it, it just seemed like a great place to be. And um, yeah, I mean, it's, was it, I'd say it'd be mad to go from like, especially when, okay, when you're, you're a showbiz editor, you're working every hour of the day, but whenever you go to then being just editor of the Scottish Sun, your phone just doesn't stop. And like you say, you're probably dealing with, subject matter that you never were dealing with before and that's got to stay with you but to me you don't seem like in the best possible way you don't seem like a journalist you know you don't i've met journalists whenever they're i've met journalists when they're off duty and they're still in journalist mode you can tell they still want to not get something out of you but but their their mind works in a way where they're very almost too inquisitive if if that makes sense and then I'd say it was yeah. a it was a fascinating thing to do, and uh, you know you're talking about making a documentary about you know going back to speak to people, but you sh- there's there's some sort of script in the fact that you know especially you were, you were so young in that job and and you know like you say you you totally stepped away from it. I want to ask you uh, while yeah. it's in my head, there is a story that I read recently involving two Scottish guys, and I don't know if you ever had any involvement with it back in the day, but they pretended to be American rappers, and they were on TV, and they, they got a record deal. Um, do you know this story? It rings a bell, yeah. There's uh, something in the back of my mind. Go there on, were two, two, two young Scottish fellas um, who were in uni together and loved rap music, and they would rap in their Scottish accents, but they... Uh, 
they were not taken seriously anywhere, but they were very, very good. And one day, like after a few drinks, they were like, should we just rap in American accents and pretend that we're American? They did warm up for, I don't think it was public enemy, but it was somebody massive in like, it wouldn't have been the O2 in London at that point. This was, this was like early noughties, maybe late nineties. And uh, they got a record deal. They recorded uh, either an EP or a full album and were just getting away with it. They, were, they would do like <laughs> press interviews in full American accents, but they were just two young Scottish guys. And eventually they got rumbled because I, I'm nearly sure Sony was the label they were signed to. Uh, Sony's lawyer was like, uh, we know all about you. You've done background checks. And uh, I remember reading that recently, that article and being like, that is very, very, very cool. But um, and I remember thinking I'd love to see that as some sort of screenplay. But oh, but it sounds yeah. like your your uh, you know your time working working with the sun and and everything that happened around it that that sounds like a a screenplay in itself. Or oh mate yeah, yeah I had this I had a great colleague a producer called Joe Attawell at Radio X, and he was an actor and he suggested you know I'd been telling him stories about my time at the paper, and he said it would make an amazing worst day of my. Um, because I kept telling stories to fall off his chair with horror. Like I remember one when I was at the Scottish paper, I'd wrongly identified a murderer on page one. Um, and I think the last the last email before I left the night before was, "I want to hear from every head of department unequivocally with full confidence that this is absolutely our man, because there's something niggling me about it." And they all came back saying, "Yep, this is the right guy. This is the right guy." Six o'clock the next morning, I, I get woken by a phone call from the person on page one saying why have you got a picture of me on page one of the paper and it turns out he was a law student so and he's seen the paper because his parents i think they were news agents i remember putting the phone down and saying to my wife this is this is it you know this is the mistake um that's going to cost me my job and my career but I, by that point i was getting to the point where i was going to bed at night thinking well, what is in the paper tomorrow that i'm going to end up in court over and it wasn't just things like that, you know, I, I, without going into detail, because I just, it's not worth the trouble, trouble with gangsters and all sorts of threats. And man, I've like, got to remember, right, you're 32 now, are you, Shane? Yeah, yeah, 32, yeah. Right. So I was 32 years old, editing the Scottish paper with a um, three-week-old baby and a three-year-old son, no. commuting an hour every day from Perth to Glasgow. Um, with a, and, and by the way, it was a colourful group of staff in Glasgow. People I loved dearly, you know, but they were quite difficult folk to, to work with. And you're suddenly this young lad who's been in London having a time of his life, standing up on a desk in front of them all saying, right, let's, let's get busy. And I think in the first month I saw the helicopter crash in Glasgow. I was one of the few witnesses. Like I say, the referendum was happening. So I was getting followed home by yes and no campaigners. I was getting abuse from my post day about stuff that was in the paper. I was going to the pub and getting attacked because of things that had happened in the history of the paper by people who had known since 1983. And in the end, I, 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 there were a couple of times I said to my missus, like, I'd, have, like, I'd hit the self-destruct button and just get so absolutely leathered that I realised I, I need to do something about this because it's not going to end well, you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, especially uh, Jesus at my age. Like, I still, I'm 32, but I still think if if you if I didn't think about it, I'm like, oh, I'm I'm in my early 20s. I don't think of myself <laughs> as a 32 year old guy. So that level of of responsibility and yeah, I mean, it must be beautiful to in a way have have all the all all that experience, all that life experience, but kind of be uh, away from that. 
from that world now. Um, is there anything you want to do at the minute? Like, is there, is there like a, a big project you have always had in the back of your mind or uh, something like you, you want to, a curiosity that you want to take off? It's a really funny time in my life, actually, Shane. I'm glad you asked about it because I've obviously had five, six months at home just thinking about life, right? And then um, I turned 40 in March in lockdown. Uh, I think it was three weeks into lockdown. And, you know, the existential crisis just started raging through me. You know, I was like, what am I going to do? Because I've just left Radio X, right? You know, COVID cutbacks, tough times. Um, and I didn't see it coming, you know, because, I, you know, I just thought that I'd sign a new deal and, and continue there. But I'm fortunate in that I've got a lot of other interests in my life. So, you know, things that aren't particularly public, like I do a lot of um, crisis management behind the scenes for troubled famous people. I also do a bit of mentoring for young talent, so young sportsmen in particular and young musicians who are kind of becoming very famous and need some tools to equip themselves, how to handle that. And I really, really enjoy doing it. And the, like, the crisis management stuff is quite interesting because, you know, you, it's a classic poacher turned gamekeeper when somebody's in the depths of despair and you can just put a comfort and arm around them and say, look, don't worry about this. We'll get you through it and here's how we're going to do it. And I've been doing that with some very high profile people. And it's, it's great to see that some of the experiences I've got over the last 20 years are, are coming back to help me. I also have a share in a whiskey called Copper Dog. And I, I really enjoy doing that, you know, working, selling whiskey around the world, which is really exciting. I mean, we've been hit hard by COVID again, like we sell most of our whiskey in the airports. So that's been a battle of laughs um, during the last six months, but it's coming back thing. together now. So that that's going okay. But what... I don't know. <laughs> what I'd love to do really is um, I'd love to get, you know, I want, I want to do something meaningful on radio. You know, I'd, I'd love to replace Ken Bruce when he finally hangs up his microphone. I, I, I think that job's fantastic. Radio to 10 o'clock in the morning, a comforting, welcoming Scottish voice. Um, but I think Ken Bruce is an absolute legend and brilliant on the radio. But I mean, other stuff, I've got really serious grown up ideas right and i don't want to bore you with them on no, a, no, you a funny podcast but i've got if I hope you don't mind this right but having a 10 year old son and a daughter i'm really really worried about the world they're about to enter with social media and just things like body dysmorphia for young girls in particular like my, my affectations that my little girl's picked up from youtubers and pop videos and stuff and the pressures that she feels from things she's seeing on social media and i don't think we're equipping young people properly to deal with that and it's a bigger picture thing as well it's like everybody now is a newspaper right so you make a decision every single day and what you publish on facebook twitter instagram whatever it happens discord whatever you're using youtube and i don't think young people are fully equipped to do that stuff because you're offering an opinion quite often an extreme opinion and you realize this is a comedian to get a big response you have to be pretty shocking right and um if you're not shocking you just blend in and you're basically realizing what it's like to be a tabloid newspaper if you don't have a big headline or a big bit of salacious gossip or a picture of somebody half naked you ain't going to sell in newspapers right and people are now making dreadful mistakes that are life-changing mistakes at 16 17 18 that will affect their employment for the rest of their lives and I just don't think we're doing enough to help them uh, present themselves digitally. And I talk about this loads with training, media training and stuff, you know, about the digital tattoo. You know, it takes me 15 minutes to look through the life of Shane Todd and I know I can find something in your past that could potentially be a son headline. Yeah. Yeah, you'll find it. <laughs> yeah, you'll find it. And it's it's like, it's great when you're tw late 20s, early 30s and you're a stand-up comedian, but... You know, when you've suddenly got uh, an 18-year-old who wants to go to university and you have to enter the corporate world to pay those bills, 
and somebody's sitting in front of you in a panel and says, Shane, you've made this joke here about sectarianism in Northern Ireland. Do oh. you think that, you know? Oh yeah, by the way. And it's like, Whoa. Those exist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and it's like I, I, you know I, I've been really irresponsible in the past with my social media and things but I do, it's something I would like to do a, a meaningful job to help preserve the mental health of young people in the future by giving them the tools to make the right decisions online but you're right because I can, I can get away with that I can justify that because I'm a comedian because uh, I do stand up but I can say oh I came from a place of humour but you're right if you know if, if my son grows up and you know, he makes a joke. How often do we say it when somebody goes into a reality TV show, a, a, a kid basically, and, and tweets they sent when they were 14, you know, in 2012, come, come back yeah. to haunt them. It does seem yeah. extremely unfair because when we're 14, we're not who we are now. We're not, we, we say silly things for effect and, uh, and we don't use correct terminology. Every single one of us has, has, said something or whatever back in the day either trying to impress people or just because you just didn't know so uh so no yeah. that seems extremely worthwhile to me and i i do very much have the feeling now of my son is six weeks old but what is 15 years time going to look like especially because social yeah. media now i think is just a, a complete i'm not gonna say cesspool because there's so much great stuff there and and even as a football fan, uh, I need social media to, to find out what's going on, to read about debates. But, um, but I despair at, at so much of it. At so much yeah. of it. So, no, that, Shane, that's part of the reason that I think I left newspapers is because when you spend your entire life, it's basically in an argument, whether it's in the paper with people who disagree on social media, and it, it does eventually take its toll on you. And, you know, like I remember having an argument or being quite pissed off when a comedian just said brazenly to my face, you're an appalling human being because you work for The Sun. And I'd seen him doing stand-up about three days before and he was talking about getting into the sea and wanking over the naked women he could see on the beach. And I was like, right, you know, that's actually a criminal offence, right? Yeah, <laughs> and oh. if, and if, I, if I caught you wanking in the sea over my 16, 17-year-old daughter or my wife, I'd get in the sea and drown you, right? Yeah. So don't cast aspersions about me. And also you've got to remember that like, I've got a pile of newspaper cuttings for the last 15 years of my career that at some point my children will leaf through and pass judgment on me. And that's going to be, I'm not entirely comfortable with it, right? A lot of it I'm very proud of it, a lot of it I'm not. People like to, uh, you know, sling mud kind of like that in a way, but anyone doing that needs to have not done anything wrong in their past needs to not have said anything and it's become a thing now i could talk about this for a long time but comedians policing the content of other stand-ups and it totally totally blows my mind um i i some somebody made a comment on a bit of material i had done i typed that person's name into youtube and the first video i saw that comedian says the word retard now it was an old set but uh within the first couple of sentences of the act so you can't, you, you know, you can't, if you have done anything wrong before, you just can't really pick all, up on what someone's doing now. We're all massive hypocrites, aren't we? You know, and I, I like to think of myself as a, a liberal person, an incredibly liberal person. My politics are always massively at odds with the publication I worked for, but life is a compromise, right? And how many people in the world can truly say they are completely ethically aligned with the company they work for? Um, and it, like, it's, it's really tricky. And, um, you know, I think about this all the time, you know, like, but 
my kids growing up. But there's so many different levels to this. It's about opinions that you offer without really understanding the subject. And Twitter is appalling for that now. You know, you, people see things trend and they think, right, I'm going to have an opinion on that. And if you look at my feed, I've just become pretty vanilla. I'm quite a beige person now. Like I'll occasionally get in an argument about football like you, but yeah, I just yeah. don't want... The minute I see people arguing about land of hope and glory, I just think, ah, oh, chuck my phone in the sea. Um, but there's another one I'm interested in talking to you about, right? Because you, you're definitely part of the world that exists, right? And I'm fascinated by this subject. We did a big bit of research at the paper about the lunchtime habits of working men, right? And traditionally, anybody born... Uh, from 1980 and before we'd have a pint maybe at lunchtime or at the end of the work read a newspaper have you know they, they would eat greggs or whatever and then we suddenly found that there was a change in culture where lads were having protein shakes taking pictures of their six packs and then um, spending most of their time on tinder and, and all the rest of it bumble and it was like this huge change but now there's this body dysmorphia of men you've got to be six pack body fat below 6.2 percent and then um, I got in the habit of like, I got really into fitness and training um, because I had the time to do it after newspapers. And the amount of abuse I got for posting about the gym and keeping fit and all the rest of it, it was like another level of social media bullying. Yeah, oh, 100%. I, I think I do it some, I'll put the odd topless photo of myself up, 100%. I'll put them up, but I will sort of just try and beat people to the punch in that a couple of months ago during lockdown um my wife took a photo outside of our house um and i was i genuinely just happened to be in it and uh, and i'm assured of so i would send it to friends and say like what do you think of our new wall uh, but i'm clearly like you know working out topless in it so i think if you almost do that and undermine yourself and make it look like listen I want I want some likes on this. I want some positive comments. Um, I think it's totally fine. Um, like I've just started working with a PT online, and I was thinking like, do I post my progress pictures because maybe there's someone else like doing the whole thing? And and then I was like, ah, I don't know. As a comedian, maybe you can't do that. But I think as long as you accept that you're going to get abused doing it, you definitely you definitely can. And like, it's like anything like. It's the same as a guy putting up a picture of his new car, you know, because he, he thinks his car looks good, you know, and he, he wants people to know he's got a new car. You know, I think if you're putting in effort, um, you know, in terms of fitness and working out and you just want to, you know, you want to show people the results, that I think, it's to- I think it's totally fine as long as you are okay with what you're about to receive as a result of it. It's about being comfortable in your own skin, isn't it? Because, uh, you know, I always say this in media training. If Mother Teresa was on Twitter or social media, somebody would say she had shit shoes. Right, so you could be a saint and the world's nicest person, and you get destroyed for it. Like, I, when I live up in Scotland, right, I've got this beautiful view, like looking across Loch Leven and Perthshire, across to the, got the Oakle Hills behind me, the Lowman Hills to one side of me. It's just a, a lovely place, and in my head, the view, and it's an amazing the countryside in Scotland because the sea. I'm going to sound like an old man here, but the seasons are magical, and it, it just makes me happy. Right, so I keep posting these pictures from my house, and then one year I got a calendar from a friend of mine. Uh, from his wife with a uh, little sarcastic comments in each month saying our house is bigger than yours and here's one where you can see a little bit of my car we've got more money than you and I, I really took I was really really upset and still I'm really upset about it because it wasn't it wasn't in any way flaunting wealth it was me showing a picture of what was making me happy away from the yes. fucking misery of newspapers <laughs> of course um, and that, I, the, the whole body thing 
So I um I have Crohn's disease. So um about got diagnosed that about five years ago, and I lost. I've always been like a little bit vain, right? But I lost maybe two and a half stone, and I'd be a naturally slim guy. So I have a horrific picture, which I can, if you want, you can see it. Um, where I did my first workout after coming out of hospital, and I, uh, it, 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 it's, it's like it would make you uncomfortable to look at. Um, so whenever I, you know, work out now, or the fact that I'm in way better shape now, like I'm in good shape now, I have no problem show, you know. I'm proud of that, you know, and I remember yeah. we, me and my wife, who was my girlfriend at the time, we lived in this really small apartment and I have always been like played football like yourself. And after I came out of hospital a couple of months, I was like, I'm going to do a workout here. And I remember so clearly she was watching Emmerdale and I went down to do a couple of press ups and I went down for the first one and I just couldn't get back up. So five years on, I'm like in really really good health at the minute thankfully my condition's very mild but i'm if i do take a photo of myself and i'm like i look good with a shirt off there the fact that you will get some people you know commenting negatively on it the fact that i feel way better in myself now outweighs those comments so like i have zero problem because it's a small price to pay for like feeling feeling really good again you know what? That's a perfect example, right? I had no idea about your medical history, right? And I, I, when I look at pictures of you and you do stuff like that, I think fair play to you. You know, he's a young man looking after himself, and it's that whole attitude again. And we live in a culture now where people feel it's appropriate to say that should be shut down or it shouldn't happen. My attitude is to say fair play to you. If it's not for me, I'll scroll on to the next thing. That's entirely up to you. It's like people who used to slag off the sun for having page three. It's like, well, you're not outside Ann Summers demanding that they take down the, 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 you know, the stockings and suspenders and sex toys in the window. You know, just live and let live, you know, be your own person. It's totally cool with me. And like every now and again, I look at mates of mine who are posting massively homoerotic pictures of themselves, you know, oiled up and six packs and all this and think, oh, yeah, bell ends. But it's nothing I wouldn't say to them in, in, in person, you know, and it's just mainly out of a place of, damn, I've let myself go. Oh, I mean, the, uh, you know, the, there is a level to it. And like when someone has clearly set up the picture a bit too much and there's oil involved, that's when you're like, no, I can't take the piss out of you for that. I definitely <laughs> can't take the piss out of you for that. I talked about this on the podcast I did two days ago. Uh, there's a song I heard recently, The Staple Singers, Respect Yourself. And there's a line in it about uh, something to the effect of if you see a man preaching with the Bible on the street, uh, let him do his thing. And that really hit home to me because I, I, I would have like seen workout photos of people a couple of years ago. And I wouldn't have commented really on it, but I would have been quite like, uh, I would have rolled the eyes. Um, I would have cared way more about what other people were doing and what they were posting. And like when I heard the lyrics of that song, I was like, yeah, I care way less now about what other people do. So if I saw someone on the street preaching with a Bible, I would have thought about it for hours. You know, why is that person doing that? Uh, I would have looked on, uh, you know, like really voyeuristically. And now I'm like, I don't know if voyeuristically is a word, but, but now I'm like, the, the less you care about what other people are doing and, and try and work out why other people are doing what they're doing, the more you could just worry about what you're doing and, and your own thing. Yeah. I think it's, you've got a wonderful perspective on it without even realising it because you come from Northern Ireland, right? I, one of my favourite nights out in the world, as I've said, is in Belfast. And I remember first coming across to see concerts there because it would often be the first night of a tour for a big artist. And it was quite intimidating coming to Belfast, right? Staying in the Europa, the most bombed hotel 
yeah. and you, you know, and, and all that stuff you hear, and also seeing grey Land Rovers trundling around town all the time, and you, you know, you you're living. There's this great thing, you know, if you turn up uh, dressed for war or expect a fight, and you're just turning up, and it looks like everyone's. But then you meet people from Belfast and think, oh God, wonderful, wonderful people, and having to grow up with conflict, right? You you develop a certain understanding of how to deal with the candor of your language and and things like that. So. You know, you've got great experience with it, even realizing it, and it, it's something that I think that the world's sadly lacking at the moment. You've got to be conscious of the words you use, and I certainly am from my time in newspapers. And there's a great documentary you should walk, watch called "The Fog of War," and it's all about the Cuban Missile Crisis and how the one one wrong word could have ended the world, right? And we've suddenly got a president in America who says the most inflammatory stuff. And it's like you've got to learn from history in those respects, and it feels like the same for me in a really in a smaller sense on social media. You've got to be careful about the candor of your language and how you say it and how you present it. And like we all make mistakes, right? I still make mistakes now, but I, I, you know, I yesterday commented on one of Ian Sterling's pictures on on Instagram because basically Ian Sterling gets every job I want. <laughs> He's a Hibs fan, ten years younger than me, going out with Laura Whitmore. I was just—I just posted that there's this Gore Vidal quote. It's like you know, every time your friend succeeds, a little part of you dies. <laughs> and um, I've never heard. I don't think he exists. Gordon, I think he's just—he's just in your head, Ian Sterling. I've never, no, I have heard him. <laughs> and it's funny, isn't it? It's like I look back at what I posted two days ago and read it and thought, oh god, that sounds like I'm the bitterest twat ever. <laughs> um, it was meant, for, and sometimes things don't come across properly. But you're absolutely right. You ha- you have to. Um, yeah, just be conscious of that. I would um, love to to do like an in-studio podcast with you next time you're over in this part of the world. And uh, and I think we should definitely have a pint. And I think we should definitely figure out ways that we can bring down Martin Kemp. Because there, <laughs> there, there are ways. Like you have the contacts and I have the time and the, and the hatred. So, um, so yeah, we need to just bring him down. I think here's what we do. I think we take our Gary first of all because Martin is nothing without Gary. Gary wrote the songs. Martin has the quiff, all right, and he knows it. So um, so yeah, yeah think, you've got an opportunity. Roman Kemp's your way in there, isn't it? You know, the, the host of the Capital Breakfast Show. You know, I'm mean, speaking of like you know Roman Kemp is a is 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 a very popular young guy. And speaking of really popular young guys, that's the last thing I want to chat to you about. Is I saw on Twitter that. I, I was talking about, about what other people are doing and not really caring about what other people are doing. The only thing that I am jealous of in this world really is the fact that Harry Styles follows you on Twitter. And I got to be honest, like I love, I love my son. I love, I love my wife, but what I love equally to those things is Harry Styles. <laughs> I mean, the guy is an artist I genuinely own hard copies of both of his albums, which I would never buy CDs anymore. But I feel like, you know, if Harry gets like even a pound fifty, even if Harry gets one fifty from that, he can buy himself some sweets or so, you know, whatever he wants or flares. So I gotta ask, have you met Harry Styles? What interaction have you had with Harry Styles? And more importantly, well, can he come to Northern Ireland with you? And what does he smell like? Uh, sorry, I just I get a little bit uncomfortable and a bit red when the shadow went hurts. I'm, I'm going to go over this top here and tell you information you weren't expecting that might actually blow your mind. So um, when I was working, I did quite, I did two or three series of Extra Factor 
back in the day is like the Alan Hansen pundit. I just sit at the end going, disgraceful, you know, <laughs> yeah. diabolical. Uh, it was with Holly Willoughby and I loved it. I loved my job doing that. It was great fun. And I was lucky enough to get to know the One Direction boys when they came through. And Simon Cowell actually paid me to do some media training with them back in the day. So I met them before they were massive. And they, they were, again, really lovely kids. And I still speak to Louis quite a lot. Obviously, Niall, again, from the, the Irish connection, he, he's just a lovely, lovely boy. But it's mad to see them grow up and become multi, multi-millionaires. When you first met them, they didn't have a penny in their pocket and they're now considerably wealthier than me. But Harry is just such a lovely human being. And in the context of what we were saying about apologising, there's one story. We were getting on great and we played golf together and all that stuff, me and Harry. And um, I wrote a front-page story about him sharing a jacuzzi with a girl on holiday. And he told me it was bollocks and we still ran it because we had a picture of him in the jacuzzi. It was probably totally innocuous. Yeah. And I really, I'd like to apologize unreservedly to Harry for that, because it was a, an error of judgment on my part, and it probably tarnished our friendship. But we've seen each other since. And the information I'm about to tell you now um, is probably slightly creepy and unusual to talk about, but if it's Harry Styles. Videos, if it's that he likes my videos, I mean, listen, it's great to know that information, but I think it might not be. Blow my Shane, mind. Shane. He is he is blessed. He has he has got um a, a, he's been very fortunate in the um when things were being handed out. Now young Harry, when I was working on X Factor, it was Matt Cardle who won it, I think, that year. And Matt Cardle said to me one day, I helped write his bio for one of his albums, and he said, Tell you what, Harry Styles has got a massive cock. And I was like, All right, right, okay. <laughs> Thanks for telling me that. And he was getting his hair cut one day on X Factor. And um, he just felt this thump in the back of his head. And he turned around and Harry had hit him with it. And I remember him telling me that story, thinking that's slightly unusual. And he, Matt Carroll said to Harry, he said, you know, you are gifted. You, you've been very fortunate there, young man. And Harry had no idea because he was just such a young lad. Anyway, years later, a couple of years later, maybe three years later, I was playing golf with him. And there was a communal shower situation at the end. Now, Shane, as a man who plays football, you know, we have showered with a lot of other men in our lives. That's true. That's so I thought, I'm going to check out. True. And the rumours the rumors are true, Shane. He is a very, very well-enhanced young man. So I have, I, I had, um, sorry, I can't really speak. Um, I had asthma up until I was about 21. So I haven't had asthma symptoms in about 11 years. But someone get me an inhaler, number one. And number two, let me just say, if I was getting a haircut and Harry Styles hit me in the back of the neck with his penis, I would turn around in record time. It wouldn't have touched the back of my neck because I'd have spun around in that chair. That's all I'm saying. Um, yeah, that's, that's, I'm really glad I know that. And it's only fueled my quest to meet Harry Styles even more. He's a brilliant boy. And you know, if anybody deserves to be blessed like that, it is Harry. And I'm sure he has put it to good use. Um, sensible, and we should point that out for the younger listeners, you know, always to be, responsible when i think he just pees out of it yeah so. yeah <laughs> <laughs> he's a great kid you know this is funny like you know i thought you might have asked the question but like normally i get pestered like oh you went away on holiday with jamie dorn and then what's he like and it's just soul destroying to be around a man who looks vaguely like you but like an enhanced wonderful perfect version of you oh i'm totally aware that like 
as much as I'm a little bit of a vain guy, I'm totally aware that if Jamie and I ever worked together, it would only be, I would be his stand-in from a distance on a project, like 100%. I could be a stand-in in the fall if they were doing like, I don't know, a mountaintop scene and they were filming from ground level. Yeah. I often say that. I say, I'm, I'm the drinking woman's Jamie Dornan. <laughs> it's a joke stolen from Jimmy Nesbitt who opens his after dinner by saying he's the drinking woman's George Clooney. You know, I, I as much as I like that line, I would still probably go with Compton a, Compton a Grey Coat or, or whatever the, the Liam Gallagher line. I think that would be the Twitter bio. Gordon, I appreciate uh, you taking the time to do this. Um, it's great to chat to you. I hope um, the next time we are, we're sitting down like this, it's face-to-face and I can ask you more questions about Harry Styles. Uh, but yeah, you're, you're an absolute gentleman. Thanks so much uh, for, for taking the time. Let's play five aside. I mean, the world is our oyster, really. Shane, Shane, what you, you, I've never really had a chance to talk to you about two things that matter a lot to me. Michael O'Neill, uh, yep. the greatest Northern Irish Hibs player and Northern Ireland manager there has been. Do, doing a great job with Stoke. And just generally, how the real truth of my career and my life is that all I've ever really wanted to do is play football. And uh, the, the career was really just an opportunity to, to play at Rod Stewart's football pitch maybe one day be selected to play. And do you remember the match? That was my dream. Uh, and then UNICEF charity match. I just want to play football with people. That's all I want to do. So when I come to Northern Ireland, I want to go to the Spanish bar. I want to drink Guinness with you. I want to record another podcast. Yep. I'd like to go out on the tear with uh, Martin Comston and Jimmy Nesbitt. And I would just like everybody I see to say, Bouchy and Parshar, because they're Parshar. my favourite we can we can definitely definitely arrange that and also i want to play in soccer aid the unicef match as well and i think what you and i should do is find a rival charity like oxfam and set up a new game and ultimately try and put unicef out of business i think that's what we that's what we should do yeah fuck those kids um (laughs) oxfam Oxfam soccer annual game. I mean, we'll work on a better title than that, but I think we should have the first the first annual one in Belfast when you're old. Yeah, definitely. We'll do it in Belfast. And then we'll have a game against the UNICEF folk and we'll all be like awful, horrible, like <laughs> revolting, aggressive guy, chinning people. Two, on foot, two foot tackles, yeah, yeah. I would like that. Gordon, thank you so much. Chat to you soon. Appreciate Cheers, it. Take care, brother.